This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Mary, how are you today? Doing well. Back from vacation, and that's a really hard week, you know? Just coming back from vacation. I've had to have two coffees today already. I think I've got it. I think I'm together. We'll see. Well, I'm, we're all pulling for you. I, I took a, a, a weekend trip, and those are always really tough to come back from, too. But the, the week after vacation always does feel like it's two weeks long. Yeah, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get through it. It's another vacation somewhere on the horizon. Somewhere. But we've got uh, a very good show lined up for today. We're going to be uh, getting into a discussion related to hospice, and we're very pleased to welcome on to the show the Executive Medical Director at Transitions Life Care. That's Dr. Rachel Lipner. Dr. Lipner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe for those of uh, our listeners who haven't um, heard you on the show before, maybe you tell, start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at Transitions before we dive into all the details. Absolutely. Um, so I am an internal medicine trained physician, but have trained in fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine. I have had my entire attending career at Transitions Life Care, and so I hold um, much esteem for our organization. I um, I started my roots of my care in the inpatient palliative care side, serving patients who are sick in the hospital, doing consults, and then I um, seemed to volunteer for things, which has landed me into positions of leadership, taking on medical director of inpatient palliative care, and more recently, executive medical director, um, helping to lead our providers all across our organization. Um, so it's been quite a journey, and I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be talking about all things um, hospice comfort kit, as well as um, some talking about being in the hospital, which is kind of where my heart clinically is. Definitely, Dr. Lipner is one of my dear friends and um, favorite colleagues. Don't tell anybody. Um, and I'm very excited for you to be <laughs> on the show. Um, you know, a lot of the times when families come on to hospice, the first thing that they hear, the first thing that they see is about a comfort kit, a hospice comfort kit or a comfort pack. Um, and sometimes it goes in the fridge and it's very confusing and there's color-coded things. And, you know, a lot of people are very alarmed by that. And um, as a, you know, a first step to hospice, it's kind of like, whoa, what's that. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is a comfort kit or a comfort pack? Um, and then we'll dive into the medications a little bit. I just want to clarify some of these myths and make it less scary um, because hospice is not a scary thing. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions. Absolutely. And, and even just to take it a step backwards, and we'll get to the comfort kit, I think the most important thing to know, and the thing that I hear most commonly of a myth is that well, they're going to take away all my normal medications mm -hmm. and just give me these certain medications, which I think is where the myth of this comfort kit comes into place. And so we'll talk a little bit about that more later on. But the big thing to remember is, is, is the care of hospice is really designed to, to meet the patient and the family's needs. And so a lot of medications that our patients are taking before they enroll in hospice, we continue those um, as kind of standard symptom management medications. The comfort kit itself is really designed to be the go-to in the case of crisis or in the case of 
active symptoms that aren't being able to be managed with the typical medications our patients are taking at home. Um, and it's designed, it's called a comfort kit because it's supposed to kind of exist like you described, Mary, in the refrigerator, kind of as a plan B option in case things get bad in terms of symptoms needing to be managed. Um, and it really desi is designed around the whole goal of comfort, quality of life, maintaining care in a home-like setting to have access to those medications that you would otherwise need to go to your doctor or go to the emergency room or get admitted to the hospital to get access to medications to help with those symptoms. So it's, it's really designed to be a plan B, I tell my patients and families, if something were to happen acutely, that the hospice team can walk you through on how to use, when to use it, while a nurse is getting to the home to assess and make sure that things are, are being managed appropriately. Again, whole paradigm of this is to provide instant comfort, security to the patient and family while preventing um, having to leave the home setting, the emergency room visit at three in the morning, or um, you know, trying to call your primary care doctor when they're not working, that sort of thing. I love that you took it a step back because that is definitely one of the first things before you get the comfort pack is you know, your, your admission nurse sits down with you and goes through all of your medications. And there are things that hospice still covers. You don't have to go off of everything. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more, just diving a little bit deeper there before we go even further into the comfort kit and what's in it. Um, are there medica Can you talk about some of the common medications that you see people staying on when they come on to hospice that hospice is still covering? Absolutely. And, and I think the answer for that is most medications, mm -hmm. even though it probably feels like the opposite of that. And the way I think about it and where I, I talk to people about it is most medications, when they get started, their primary goal is symptom management. So think about even little kids, when they get sick or they have a fever, we give them Tylenol. That goal is symptom management. And mm -hmm. so all the medications that most of our patients get out through their years of life are designed with symptom management as really the primary reason they get them. So let's give some specific examples. Think about blood pressure. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, as they get older, the vessels get tighter, they end up with high blood pressure. Um, I always think of if you have super high blood pressure, you're going to get a headache. You are going to not feel well. So innately controlling your blood pressure, even though we know there are consequences um, for the body big term for having high blood pressure over time, innately those medications are really designed to relieve the symptoms of headache or generally not feeling well if your blood pressure is really high. Same thing, if you have low blood pressure or you're taking too much medications, you can get dizzy. So it's all about balancing the right blood pressure medications to keep you feeling well um, in and of itself. Similarly, think about heart failure. A lot of the medications that our patients end up on for heart failure are really designed with symptom management in mind. The blood pressure medications we just talked about, the medications like furosemide or Lasix that help remove fluid from the body, that's gonna help with swelling, it's gonna help with breathing. Those are all really basic symptom management medications. Of mm -hmm. course, those medications also have the effect of trying to kind of improve the elasticity of the heart, help the heart pump function better. But if you take away the disease targeted treatment aspect of them, a lot of it is really symptom management. Um, the other one I hear a lot about, which I wanted to mention is diabetes. So in general, when you're not moving toward a comfort end of life plan, the goal is to really have close sugar management. And so monitoring blood sugar really strictly, trying to keep in that certain range under 250 for blood glucose. In hospice care, there still are monitoring that is happening. We tend to have the restrictions be less because we're not worried about 5, 10, 20 years having complication of diabetes. 
But if your blood sugar is really high, you're not going to feel well or you're not going to be awake. If your blood sugar is really low, same thing. So we still recommend monitoring of blood sugar. We still recommend treatment with insulin or, or diabetes medications because innately they keep people comfortable because of that management. Mm, that's very helpful. Are there any specific drugs that are added at admission for a specific diagnosis that maybe the patient's coming on to hospice um, to help manage? Yeah, I think it's all very customized. I was thinking about this question, and a lot of it has to do with how is the patient when they're getting in, enrolled into hospice care? Are they really anxious? That would be an immediate reason to consider more of like a scheduled anxiety med, which we'll we'll get into in a little bit with the comfort pack. Um, typically, it, the medications that are added from the get-go are medications that help with a lot of those things that surround a change in plan of care, anxiety, or maybe increased pain, which is what landed someone with with the plan to enroll in hospice so starting you know either short acting or long acting medications to help with pain or anxiety or dyspnea are typically the, typically the thing the other thing that often gets added is medications to help with constipation because and again we'll talk about this a little bit with the comfort pack but as your body starts to move less even though you may be eating less your body still can get really constipated. And so adding medications to prevent constipation is really, really important. And the way I always think about it is our skin, you know, throughout the day is kind of having this top layer that's shedding. Our gut needs to do the same thing. So the thing that I always get asked by family members is, well, my, my loved one hasn't eaten in five days. They, should they really be having a bowel movement? Well, of course, they're not going to be having a robust, you know, bowel movement, but they should still be kind of gently shedding the lining of their gut. And we can still see constipation when people are not moving and even if they're not eating. So that tends to be a medication that I think about a lot because it's something that if you have that symptom, it can be so distracting from everything else that you're trying to do. Um, and managing constipation and being ahead of the curve of that is really important. That's a great point. We're speaking with Dr. Rachel Lipner. She is the Executive Medical Director at Transitions Life Care, and we're going to continue our conversation on hospice with her right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can learn more about Transitions Life Care online at transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Dr. Rachel Lipner. She is the Executive Medical Director at Transitions Life Care, and we're having a discussion on hospice. And Mary, there's something that Dr. Lipner brought up that we want to circle back to. Definitely. We've been kind of skating around what a comfort pack is and all the different medications when you're coming on to hospice. So Dr. Lipner, let's dive right into the comfort pack. What kind of medications come in the comfort pack and what do these medications help with? Absolutely. And the, the first thing I want to lead off with is every comfort pack is customized to mm. our specific patient. And so I'm going to list kind of what our typical comfort pack look like, looks like. However, if someone has an allergy or a reason that they cannot take some of these medications due to their disease process, that obviously wouldn't be included. Our, our primary goal is kind of having access to the medications that are appropriate for our patients. 
Um, so let's start with the, the one that will probably get the least number of questions, acetaminophen or, as, as we know, Tylenol. Um, that's always in our comfort pack because fevers happen um, as people get sicker. They develop pain, which can be relieved with, with acetaminophen. Um, haloperidol is something we use for anxiety, which I know we're going to, or for, um, excuse me, for nausea and vomiting, as well as agitation, which we're going to talk a little bit more about. Hycosamine is something that uh, many of our listeners may not have heard of. It's, it's something that's used for increased secretions or increased saliva that people have trouble swallowing as they get closer to the end of life. Lorazepam, otherwise known as Ativan, is used for anxiety. Um, Prochlorperazine is used for nausea and vomiting, uh, similar to a medication called Zofran, which people may have heard of. And then, um, as we ended our last segment, Dolcolax and Senna are very important for constipation. Those are medications that most people should be familiar with. They can typically be bought over the counter, but our team works to kind of aggressively prescribe them if necessary. And um, most most, um, discussed and most myths around opioids and morphine tends to be in our comfort pack for as needed for pain, shortness of breath, and coughing. You know, I, I was uh, shadowing with one of our nurses in a local hospital here, and we met a hospice um, patient and their um, caregiver in the emergency room. And they got there at like 2 or 3 in the morning. Everyone looked very stressed and tired. Um, the reality was they did have these medications at their home that could help treat what was going on, but they were so nervous. And, and talking with them with our nurse who was there in the emergency room, um, the the caregiver was like, oh, no, I didn't want to give morphine. Like, I was too scared. We had it, but I was too scared. Um, talk to us a little bit about this. You, you're also a physician in the hospital, and, and you probably see this much more than I do, um, not being in the hospital very often. But this moment for me was kind of an eye-opener of you know, there is a lot of fear and a lot of barriers between giving some of these medications as a caregiver. Um, And on the clinician side, you know, these do really help and treat some of these symptoms. Absolutely. There's so much fear. And I think that starts with, unfortunately, other healthcare workers, and it bleeds into the general population. So a lot of what I do on a day-to-day basis is try to educate my peers about the appropriateness of these medications, how how our patients who are using them are being very monitored closely. There is education provided to the family about how to give these medications. We always start start low, go slow, but it doesn't it doesn't take away the the fear that that everyone has surrounding these medications. Um, what I often say is that we always start with that lowest dose, and, and sometimes. I tell my patients, you may not even feel a difference because we're going to start low. So let's start low. Let's see how it goes. If you don't feel anything, then we know we'll need to use a little bit more. So kind of starting with the approach of less medication to see if we get an effect at all. Um, the thing that people often, you often hear worried about is, and something that has kind of perpetuated is respiratory depression or causing people to not be able to breathe with Mm. opioids like morphine. There have been so many studies surrounding this and how opioids are not only gold standard of treatment for pain in our patient population, but also really for that shortness of breath. Um, They're very effective when they're monitored and used appropriately, which is again, we hear the question about, I don't wanna get addicted, all of our patients are being heavily monitored. They're being educated by our nurses. Our 
our staff, um, they, they're not just kind of given these medications and say, hey, good luck with them, um, to, to prevent against addiction or complications with these medications. Um, but when used appropriately, medications like opioids do not hasten death when they're prescribed effectively. There have been many studies that looked at the effect of survival um, when patients are using, you know, even chronically opioids for things like pain and shortness of breath, and none of them have affected survival or have shortened life. And so a lot of the education we do around that is that it's really the disease process that's causing someone to feel the way they are. These medications are purely helping people feel better, meaning have less pain have less trouble breathing, maybe relieving a, a cough due to underlying lung cancer versus causing the person to get sicker or to to progress faster to end of life. Another thing that um, I, I've heard families say before, like, no, I don't want to give that because I want them to be awake. Um, I want them to be alert. I, you know, so-and-so family member is coming. I don't want to give them any medication so they can talk to them. In, in reality, are are we making symptoms worse by doing these things? Is this a, a real issue um, that a caregiver or a loved one should be worried about? It's a real concern. And what I often talk about is the double effect. So the first starting point is that our patients, as they progress to end of life, are going to become more tired and more sleepy. That is part of the disease process. The way the body is shutting down, it's kind of going into survival mode. It's shunting blood to those very vital organs to stay alive versus the ability to be like awake and conversant and participatory. So the the being awake part is part of the disease process in and of itself. When it talks to when we talk about controlling symptoms, I say, you know, it's 2023, we don't have medications that'll keep someone perfectly awake and control symptoms. Um, but typically the sedation is something that goes away with time if the medication is given over a period of time. Um, and so that's not something that usually is a side effect that's long lasting. However, we can never 100% say that these medications are not causing the double effect or the unfortunate side effect of mild sedation. Again, pointing out the biggest piece is that the disease process itself is causing causing our patients to become less awake, less responsive, or having less time of being alert and awake. That's very helpful. And something else that you see sometimes, you know, someone who may not be verbal anymore, how do you look for signs as a clinician and also as a caregiver um, of pain or of anxiety and how to address those? Yeah, it's a great question because that's often the concerns that we see um, with our family members. Well, what if they can't press the call button? How does the nurse know that they don't feel well? How do how do how do we know that they don't feel well? There's really simple things that we can look for where it doesn't have to be someone saying, "Hey, I'm in pain. Hey, I look I'm uncomfortable." Um, so what we look for is a, an impression of being sad, like a furrowed brow, a facial grimacing. Um, a, a restlessness or agitation that shows that there's discomfort, but perhaps because they're not awake, they can't get up, they can't maybe just move their hip to say, hey, I'm having pressure on my hip, that's making me uncomfortable. Other things we look in body language are kind of being tensed up, maybe fidgety, rigid, knees pulled up to the chest, kind of that, you know, survival, survival um, posture. Um, again, that kind of pushing away, striking out, agitation. Um, 
the the other thing that we look for is if someone has the ability to verbalize at all is there moaning is there um is there kind of calling out is there crying how does their breathing look do they look labored with their breathing are they breathing really fast one thing we see a lot is people who are really breathing quite fast like 50 times a minute and they look really uncomfortable and mm-hmm. and maybe families don't recognize that maybe maybe other healthcare staff don't recognize that and i tell them i say you breathe as fast as your loved one is breathing for a minute and tell me if that's comfortable mm-hmm. because our body is not designed to breathe like that unless you know unlike me someone has run you know a, a marathon and they're mm-hmm. or they're finishing that intense workout um and then the last piece we look at is consolability are we able to console our loved ones or our patients with light touch or is is what we're doing not consoling them is it really something beyond just being alone or being if you having needing a sense of, of comfort from a physical touch mm. we are speaking with Dr. Rachel Lipner, she is the Executive Medical Director at Transitions Life Care, and she's giving us the medical perspective of hospice, and we're going to continue our conversation with her right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Dr. Rachel Lipner. She is the Executive Medical Director at Transitions Life Care, and we're talking about the medical side of hospice. And Mary, you know, we talk often about hospice Mm -hmm. on this program and the reason we do that is because a lot of times this is a a a stressful decision Mm -hmm. for families to make when it comes to deciding okay when is the right time Mm -hmm. you know i talk about my my experience in hospice and with my grandfather and my grandmother and i i am very grateful that i work at transitions and i understand you know and i was help i was able to explain to my family but there are a lot of people that don't have you know, that benefit of having a loved one who works directly in the field. So Dr. Lipner, as a physician in our local hospital, what are some of the challenges that you see when you're speaking with families and patients who are struggling with that decision to move to hospice? Absolutely. I think, I think the challenges start before we even talk to the patients Mm -hmm. and families. Um, I know we mentioned this earlier, having the general um, medical community understand hospice and make the referrals at an appropriate time is, is a huge piece of it. So often what we're seeing is really late referrals to, to these goals of care discussions or to conversations talking about hospice. Um, so that is a kind of the first barrier and how it's presented to our patients and families before our team with Transitions Life Care walks in the room also sets the precedent for what the expectation of that conversation looks like. So um, again, it's my shout out for ongoing education to our medical community at large about palliative care and hospice. But I think the big thing that I see when when patients and, and their families are struggling with the decision to move on to hospice is myths around really what hospice is. 
um, the sense that hospice limits kind of what someone is already able to do. For instance, examples I thought that would be most helpful would be, well, I, I can't leave my home if I go on hospice. Well, the opposite's true. We want you to leave your home. We want you to do the things you enjoy as long as you can do it comfortably. Um, or to swinging the other way of just this week, I had a patient tell me, well, hospice will only come in and hold my hand. They're not gonna give me any medications. They're not gonna take care of me. Um, so again, it swings both ways in what, what the community at large thinks of hospice and what they think hospice is going to provide. Um, the other big one we hear is, well, I don't want hospice because I'm awake, I take care of myself, I know I have this really bad cancer or whatever disease process, but I know they're just gonna come in and stop all my medications and only give me morphine. So a lot of what we do is dispel these myths and, and start with, what are your goals? Where, what, what do you want to see in terms of your quality of life? And let them explain what they want and then tell them how that fits with the, with the hospice model of care. So that's how I've been most successful in, in navigating these conversations with our patients and families. And oftentimes it means they want the services and sometimes it means, well, I'm really glad I have this information. This isn't really what I want right now, but I'm so happy to know that it exists for us down the road when we want it. That's very helpful. Are there any triggers that you look for as a physician to start a conversation about hospice or about goals of care with a family or patient? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. There's been a lot of studies around the surprise question, which mm -hmm. some of you all have may have heard about. Would I be surprised if this patient died within the next 12 months? That would be more so a question for have, initiating a goals of care conversation. Um, it has limited data supporting it. It means that we're, we as, as physicians are not very good at using that question to help identify our patients. Um, but it does at least, if, you, if, our, if my colleagues are thinking about that, they should be saying, oh, this is time to have a goals of care conversations. Maybe it's time to have our palliative care team be involved. Um, definitely, if you spin that question to, would I be surprised if this patient died in the next six months, that's when it'd be appropriate to have someone have a hospice info session or at least introduce the concept to a patient and family member and have them have our team come by and do an info session, explain what it looks like, talk about the services. The big thing that I always tell is like a high level to my colleagues is, Anytime someone has a life-limiting illness, advanced dementia or cerebrovascular disease, advanced cancer, whether it's metastatic or locally aggressive, end-stage renal disease, advanced COPD, end-stage liver disease, septic shock if they're in the hospital, or, or a geriatric patient with like what I call my quote tipper event, like a fall with a hip fracture and a cranial hemorrhage, mm -hmm. Those are times to really start thinking about, let's kind of lay this all out on the table. Let's talk about what the trajectory looks like. Let's talk about what someone wants for their body moving forward. The other thing we see a lot in the hospitals, if someone's having two or more hospital admissions in the past six months, it's a good time to take a step back and say, whoa, what is, what is this person's life outside the hospital look like? What does quality of life mean for them? Um, in general, I say, if you're starting to think about goals of care or talking about goals of care, you're thinking about, ooh, would hospice be appropriate? we probably should have been on board weeks or months ago. Mm, that's a good advice. On the flip side, does hospice always have to be the final decision too? I know a lot of people are like, oh gosh, no, I'm not there yet. I don't, I don't want to go there because I can't ever come back out of it. Are you really truly stuck on hospice forever once you go on? Absolutely not. Um, what, I, what I tell most of our patients and families, most patients who enroll in hospice have Medicare as their insurance. You do have to sign on to the hospice Medicare benefit, but I always tell people you're not 
You're not signing into a stone. You're not, we're not making this a, a permanent decision. So patients and families can always opt out or revoke if their goals are not concurrent with the hospice philosophy. And on the same side, I will tell some patients, if you improve from this hospitalization or whatever we're navigating right now gets better, you may get discharged from hospice because it's felt that you no longer meet criteria for, for this terminal condition. Um, so there's, it's definitely not a make this decision and you're, you're on it forever. Um, but to the other point, there is no limit to the number of benefit periods a patient can be on hospice. So on the other end, I tell people you can be on hospice for days, weeks, months, even years, as long as you continue to qualify. That is very helpful. And one of my favorite things to ask, uh, and I can't wait to hear your answer, as, as a hospice and palliative care physician, what are, what are some of the biggest things you've learned when working with families and patients? Yeah, this one was a hard one because I have learned so much over the years. I think going into every conversation with an open mind, asking permission to have a conversation and share information is the biggest gift I give my patients and families every single day because the standard of the healthcare system is just to come in and tell them what's what and move mm-hmm. on. And you can see the relief when you give back the control of saying, can I sit down? Can I have a conversation with you? Would you be open to telling me about yourself? It just gives back that little bit of control that our patients and families have not had when they're navigating a very serious illness. Um, And as much as I love medicine and science and my brain works that way, there's really an art to good communication. And sometimes I may be thinking my brain is going down this way with the conversation and I can just look at a family member who is seconds away from bursting into tears and you have to stop, you have to identify that, you have to, you have to meet, meet people where they are because that's how we're therapeutic in our conversation. Wow, that's so well said. And oftentimes we think that uh, communication could be great and uh, maybe great for one of us, but maybe not the other party involved. So it's, it's a very tricky thing and we'd really commend you for um, taking extra steps to make sure that uh, we're doing our best to communicate. And it's really something to think about as uh, this is it's it's a hard situation to deal with in general, but uh, and then on top of that, to really focus on communication, it, it can go a long way, and it can really help everyone be comfortable. Dr. Rachel Lipner, Executive Medical Director at Transitions Life Care, thank you so much for coming on with us and for sharing some time and a lot of great information and giving us some things to think about. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, we are going to take a break here. I want to remind everyone that if you would like to catch past episodes of Aging Matters, you can go online to WPTF.com. Click on the podcast button. From there, you can find Aging Matters. You'll see Mary's smiling face on the podcast cover there. But you can find information about all the past episodes, uh, view the full archive, information there about getting in contact with the show as well. Go to WPTF.com, click on the podcast button, and find the Aging Matters section. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 
WPTF News Talk Traffic. Hey, if you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to go online to transitionslifecare.org. Plenty of resources and information available for you there. Also, career opportunities. If you're looking for a change there, head on over to transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. And Mary, we are shifting gears here, and we're going to be talking about anticipatory grief. And I'm really very much looking forward to this conversation. And we, uh, we've we brought on one of our own. We're mm-hmm. going to be speaking with E. Below. E. Below is a Grief Outreach Coordinator at Transitions Life Care. E, thank you so much for coming on the show. Certainly. Thanks for having me. This is a very um, touching topic for me, something that I talk about with my therapist. I'm very excited to talk to you, E, about this. Um, I talk about my dogs a lot on the show, and I know that that's very different um, than people, but still there is anticipatory grief that I I have experienced in thinking about one of my dogs who's on hospice. And it's it's real, you know, thinking about anticipatory grief. And um, so maybe start us off, how does this differ to grief after death? Yeah, that's a really great question, Mary. And as you may have intuited uh, by the the name anticipatory grief, um, this type of grief, you know, typically occurs after. Uh, before a death-related loss. Um, so typically it, it refers to what someone might feel in the days or, or months or even years before the death of a loved one. Um, it's that experience of knowing that a change or a loss is inevitable um, and experiencing grief in the face of that. So where grief related to a death, you know, typically only impacts the people who are, are left in their absence. Um, anticipatory grief can actually impact not just their loved ones, but also the person um, who's been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. Um, you know, oftentimes we, we make this mistake of thinking of grief as just that physical loss of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but like grief that occurs after a death, you know, anticipatory grief can also um, often include grief around all of those layers of loss um, as an illness progresses. You know, things like loss of companionship as your person's abilities change or in your, your case, your pups change. Um, you know, the change in your role with your loved one, you know, loss of financial security and, and even of the future. Um, you know, of course, we expect to experience grief after a death. Um, but, you know, few of us really understand that grief can show up before a life ends. Um, and I, I'd really say that the biggest difference between anticipatory grief and, and grief related to a death or what you might call conventional loss um, is that conventional grief is similar to, to grieving backwards. You know, that is, we, we mourn a loss that's already happened, whereas with anticipatory grief, it, it's really more forward-focused. Um, we're grieving everything that we expect to lose, not just that physical loss of the person, but, but all of those layers. Mm. As if being caregiver isn't enough already, you know, or you're already dealing with taking care of somebody and, um, and and kind of getting everything in place and really working through what's to come and then add this on top of it. It's just one more layer that that is very difficult for someone in this situation, I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. E, so how do you know if you're feeling anticipatory grief? What are some signs and symptoms to look out for? Um, I, I can think about it in my own case, like stress, for example, I, I can imagine is something that, you know, it kind of multiplies when you're anticipating grief. Um, I feel my stress levels rising. But how do you know what you're feeling is anticipatory grief? Yeah, and Mary, you, you hit the nail on the head with, with stress, especially when you couple that with caregiving responsibilities. Mm-hmm. 
um, and what you experience can, can be really similar to what you might expect to experience um, after a, a death-related loss. So, of course, you know, feelings of, of sadness or tearfulness, um, maybe some denial or fear, um, maybe even guilt. Um, you might find yourself rehearsing the death, um, you know, what it might be like to, to think about the future with, without that person there. Um, or if you're the person who's dying, you know, maybe thinking about what that death experience might feel like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, we, we do have, you know, increased levels of stress. Um, like you mentioned, uh, you know, we might experience more anger, anxiety. anxiety. Um, a lot of us experience changes in sleep. Maybe you're sleeping too much or too little. Um, and oftentimes that, that is because we are in this kind of in-between place between, you know, maintaining this, this needed sense of hope, um, but also starting to prepare for the death of our person and, and letting go, so to speak. Um, and that can be a really painful and, and confusing space to live in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. So moving forward, what are ways that you can cope with anticipatory grief? Are there things that you can do or or, or ways that you can start to cope with that now to help? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you hit on a, a good point of, you know, what can I do now versus what, what I might have to, to deal with in the future um, and I think one important thing to remember for yourself or, or even if you're supporting someone who's grieving is just remembering that just because you're grieving before somebody dies, it doesn't mean that you won't grieve after they die. Um, you know, anticipatory grief, it, it doesn't necessarily make the grief process easier. Um, and it isn't a substitute necessarily for grieving later. You know, I, I think sometimes we think that there can't possibly be anything more to, to feel or, or give after a loved one has died. And you know, we can be really hard on ourselves and in, in, in turn afterward. Like, you know, haven't I already done this before or, or shouldn't I be over this by now? Um, but it's really important to recognize that that's a really common response. Um, and there is no timeline on grief. There's no fixed volume of grief. You can't, you know, save it up now or, or carry it forward later. Um, and knowing that even if your loved one has been sick or, or has been declining for several, several years, um, you know, nothing can really fully prepare us for, for the actual death and how we'll respond. Um, you know, I, I do want to mention in, in that same vein, though, anticipatory grief, it, it does have some benefits that can provide us with opportunities for closure that, you know, people whose loved one died perhaps suddenly or, or unexpectedly might not experience. And sometimes, you know, it can also provide us with space to have those hard conversations or mm-hmm. share memories or, or seek closure. Um, I think ultimately, you know, the most important takeaway is, is to recognize that, like with conventional grief, we all grieve in our own timeline and, and in our own way. Um, so it's important to try to maintain a sense of grace and, and patience with yourself, um, to give yourself that permission to experience that, you know, wide-ranging um, experience of emotions with, without judgment. Um, you know, grieving your person before they die, it, it doesn't mean that you're giving up hope or abandoning them. Um, I think that's one thing that a lot of us worry about, um, but knowing that it is possible to to grieve the for the future without relinquishing the present necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And if folks want to find more information, e, what's the best way for folks to do that? Yeah, you you can certainly go to transitionslifecare dot org to learn more about grief. Um, our our services are primarily focused on death related losses. Um, you know, there, there are some really great resources out there. 
Um, there's a great website called What's Your Grief that's really chock full of resources and helpful articles on grief and, and anticipatory grief. Um, and ultimately, you know, some of the best resources are around us, um, you know, leaning on your supports, anticipatory grief and, and caregiving in, in the midst of all of that can be a really heavy load. Um, so maybe doing an assessment of those supports, um, who you can go to, to to help with the laundry or who you can go to to, to just be distracted if you need to. Um, someone once told me, you don't go to Home Depot to buy bread. So, you know, knowing who you can call on for, for those different needs as you're grieving can be really helpful. Um, if you're working with a care team or have access to a nurse or a social worker or a spiritual care member, um, use them. You know, they can really help you approach and, and navigate some of those hard conversations with a lot of grace and, and dignity. Um, some folks, you know, might find comfort or insight in caregiver groups. Um, I think one of the, the silver linings that I've found in this pandemic is that, you know, we aren't confined to geography. We can access support from miles away, um, including counseling, you know, considering counseling, it, it doesn't have to be forever. It can be just to get you over a particularly heavy period and, and give you a container for some of that heaviness and, and maybe feel a little less isolated in your grief. Yeah, that's wonderful insight. And those websites, again, transitionslifecare.org and what's your grief com. What's your grief.com. We've been speaking with E. Bello. He is a grief outreach coordinator at Transitions Life Care. E, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jason and Mary. Well, the pleasure's all on this end of the microphone, and we're just about out of time for today. I want to remind you, if you want to find more information about Transitions Life Care, head on over to Transitions Life Care. If you want to catch up on past episodes of Aging Matters, head over to WPTF.com. Click on the podcast button, and there you'll find a wonderful picture of Mary and the Aging Matters logo. And there you can view the full archive of shows that we have available for you to listen and download there, WPTF.com. Out of time for today, but we hope you'll join us again next weekend. Thank you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful weekend. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.